Well, good morning. Oh, no, I was louder than you. That won't do. Good morning. Okay, that's a little better. Hey, I am thankful. I have already been abundantly blessed by our time together this morning. Um, it's all lined up so beautifully. In fact, a lot of the texts that I will point to in my sermon have already been read this morning. Um, but thank you to Seth and the team. Thank you to the Glenn family for uh, doing that reading this morning. Again, I have been extremely blessed by our time already. So I want to extend a welcome to all of those who are with us this morning. Maybe if you're here visiting for the first time and you don't know me, my name is Brandon Reed and I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here in this body of believers called Christ Covenant Fellowship. Look, if you're here and this is your first time, we would love to get to know you. As Pastor Tyler said, introduce yourself to one of us or one of our members. We'd be more than happy to uh, connect with you and answer any questions that you might have. <clears throat> well, it's no secret. The Christmas season is here. It's officially upon us, right? The hustle and bustle of travel plans and decorating and shopping and all of these other things is certainly in full swing at this time of year. There's a distinct type of excitement and joy uh, surrounding this time of year. It's almost palpable. You can really feel it during the Christmas season. But listen, as we gather together this morning, we have reason also to be excited. We have the greatest reason to rejoice, and it has nothing to do with presents or wrapping paper or decorations or holiday treats. In fact, the joy that we have, our excitement, our hope is not bound to one particular time of year. We have reason to consistently rejoice, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Listen, this morning marks the third Sunday of our Advent season. This season has significant meaning for us as believers as we look back to the first coming of Christ Jesus, God dwelling amongst men, the Lord Jesus taking on flesh and lowering himself in the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, obedient to the will of the Father, even to the point of death on a cross, bearing the sins of the world. You see, the Christmas season reminds us of the incarnation, the birth of our Savior. But we don't simply look back to the first coming of Jesus Christ. We eagerly anticipate his second coming as well. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming back again. And he's coming to make all things new, to usher in his eternal kingdom. And for those of us that are found in Christ Jesus, his return means the fulfillment of our redemption and our restoration. Christ Jesus will gather his bride, the church. He'll carry us home to heaven where we will reside with him for eternity, enjoying the perfection of God and the presence of God. What a glorious reality that is. I hope I'm not the only one excited about that this morning. The fact that God has bridged the gap between himself and sinful humanity and by his divine mercy and the atoning work of Christ Jesus, we are welcomed into the Lord's courts. We are afforded a seat at his, at his table and now called his children. And this is an astonishing act of love. As we've already mentioned several times this morning, again, this is the third Sunday in our Advent season. The first Sunday we discussed uh, the hope 
that we have in Christ Jesus, a real and lasting, sustainable hope. Last week, Pastor Tyler led us in our time, and we talked about the peace that we have in Jesus Christ. Listen, this morning we will discuss one of God's most overwhelming attributes, his love. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. This is one of the uh, Apostle Paul's, or excuse me, the Apostle John's letters in the New Testament. In fact, the Apostle John wrote five books in the New Testament. There's the Gospel of John, there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then of course the book of Revelation. This morning with our time, we will be in John's first letter. 1st John chapter 4, we will look at verses 7 through 12. If you are having trouble finding that, it's okay. It's in the New Testament, sandwiched right between 2nd Peter and obviously 2nd John. So, I'll give you a second to get there. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I just want to read this text, and then I'll pray and ask God to bless our time together this morning. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and it reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved him, and, or excuse me, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is once again we gather together this morning to sing your praises. And Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to be together. God, we are thankful for the love that you've shown to us through Christ Jesus. Father, I have an incredible task before me to preach your word. That's something I could never do to the glory that you deserve. So, Father, I ask that by the power of your spirit working in this place today, that you would be glorified, that you would use me, a lowly, sinful, broken, fallible human being, to bring glory to your own name. God, open our eyes, our hearts, our ears to receive the truth of what these verses are telling us this morning. God, I pray that you would encourage us with the text but also challenge us with it as well, and that you would be glorified through it all. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, what is love? What is love? How would you answer that question? Is love a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is love an action? Is it an idea? Is love something that's abstract? Or is love something that is tangible? Maybe love is all of the above. But what is love really? What does love actually mean? That's a great question for us to ponder on this morning. If I were to pose that question to 100 different individuals, I would probably get 100 different answers. 
And the reason for the varying responses is that most people have defined love their own way. The world certainly has its own definition of love. See, according to the world, love is just a feeling of affection and pleasure and affirmation. Love is often tied to sexual intimacy. See, many within the culture, many within our society believe that love is simply giving people exactly what they want and desire. Like, if you love me, you'll give me this thing that I want. That's how we've come to define love. Listen, that train of thought is as old as the garden. In fact, having what we want is what brought sin into the world. I want you to think about Adam and Eve and the fall, right? The Lord had given them authority over his creation, right? He had given them free reign to have their fill of the land, to go be fruitful and multiply, and to eat of all of the trees in the garden except one. And then in Genesis 3, 6, what does it say? It says the tree was what? A delight to the eyes and to be desired. It was something they wanted. But God wasn't being unloving by denying them. No, he had told them no for a reason. See, love is not giving people what they want. It's giving people what they need most, what is best for them. But see, that's our issue, isn't it? As sinful, broken humanity, humanity bent towards our own will, we don't even know what's best for us. We don't even know what we want. We think we do, but thankfully we have a loving Heavenly Father. And out of His abundant love and wisdom, He has given us exactly what is best for us, exactly what we need most, and that is an all-sufficient Savior. You see, there are a lot of different perspectives on what love is, but there is no debate that love is something that we all desire. In fact, love is, is often the motivation for all of the things that we do, whether it's love for others or love for ourselves. See, although love is something that humanity naturally desires, it is something that is often misunderstood and often ill Defined. Much of what is expressed nowadays as love isn't actually resembling what God defines to be love. See, there are certainly those that are seeking to misconstrue and create their own version of love with the, what satisfies their own passions and their own sinful desires. All the while, it's void of any actual truth of what love is. It's not a depiction of what God calls love. So how does God define love? Maybe you're here and you're wondering, okay, well, what does it mean? What is love actually? How does God actually define love? What does it look like? Well, uh, the Glenn family actually read this text for us this morning. See, the Apostle Paul gives us a pretty wonderful description of what love looks like for us, how we display it towards one another. 1 Corinthians 13 uh, verses 4 through 7, I'll read it again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you're wondering what the love of God looks like in us, this is it. All we have to do is turn to his word and we can find out what it means to love, how God has defined love. The scriptures, the Bible, front to back, covers the idea of love very extensively. 
See, God has revealed to us through his word what love demands, but he has also displayed his love for us in the greatest fashion through Christ Jesus, his son. You see, the title of this sermon is The Manifest Love of God. So as we look at this text that's before us this morning, I want to simply discuss three realities. Like a good Baptist preacher, I have three points that we'll go through this morning, and here they are. Number one, God is the originator of love. God is the originator of love. Number two, God's love is made manifest in Christ Jesus. God's love is made manifest in Christ Jesus. And number three, God's love is perfected in us when we love others. So those are the three points. Those are our three headings. And my goal today is to illuminate the everlasting and all-sufficient saving love of God. And by understanding God's love and seeing how it's been extended to each of us, we would leave here today not only worshiping the Lord Jesus, but we would also be moved to extend his love to those around us. So with that framework in mind, with that goal in mind, let's kind of work through these verses together. So point number one, God is the originator of love. We find that in verses 7 and 8. And this is what it says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The Apostle John has already spent a good portion of this letter covering the idea of love. But here in chapter 4, he gives it the most extensive treatment. He addresses it a little bit more for us to understand. And he calls our attention to consider not just the idea of love, but the source and the originator of love, God himself. See, friends, when it comes to the subject of love, we must first understand that love is a divine concept that begins with the Creator. John says here, let us love one another, for love is from God. Listen, love, that is genuine, real, authentic love, has its origin in God the Father. See, love is God's idea. It's not a concept that has been birthed by humanity. It's not something that mankind has thought up or created. But true love finds its beginning and its end in God the Father. See, this is the reason that the world so scarcely displays legitimate love, because we've completely divorced the concept of love from its originator. We can't have any real semblance of love apart from its origin. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that people who aren't saved can never love. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, the sad reality is sometimes they love better than we do. If that stings, you're not alone. Just coming out of my mouth, that was difficult because I know I failed in that area many, many times. So if that made you squirm a little bit, that's okay. You're not alone in that. Listen, we just read the verse in 1 Corinthians and what it says love is. Love is not rude. It's not boastful. It's not resentful. It doesn't demand its own way. I know I've been all of those things. Man, I've probably been all of them this week. I probably was some of them this morning before I got here. Man, but even that illuminates the the glorious and radical love of God that he knows that about me, but he loves me anyway. He knows that you're going to be all of those things. He knows you're going to fail in those areas. And guess what? He loves you anyway. In fact, he loves you so much that he sent his son into the world that you might live. 
We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Listen, it's difficult to model this type of love. We, we know what it demands. And if I'm honest with myself, sometimes I just don't want to do it because it's difficult, because it's hard. So here's a great place for us all to pause and really examine ourselves. How are we loving the people in our lives? How are we demonstrating the love of Christ to people? Are we doing that? Listen, as God's people, as those that bear the name of Jesus, we are to love others as he has loved us. And we'll come back to that point in just a minute. See, John writes in a very circular way. He begins by reminding us to love one another. And then this section here, he ends by reminding us of that again. So we'll come back to that in just a minute. So even as those who don't know the Lord, they can show love. That is true. And here's why. Because we're all created in the image of God. So every person is going to inevitably display some of the likeness of the God in which they are created. However, here's the reality. Apart from the divine creator, who is the very essence of love, love falls incredibly short if it doesn't include God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, one commentator writes this. He says, human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father and Son as the supreme objects of its affections. See, genuine love always points to the greatest reality, and that's God. That is God, the wellspring of eternal love, God Almighty. See, real, genuine love cannot be defined by the world's standards. It can't be determined by the culture. It can't be determined by our emotions or our feelings. Our starting point for how we define love must be the divine author of love, God the Father. See, as its originator, that means God has a specific design for love. Here's where it gets a little bit difficult for us. God is the designer, right? God is the originator. He is the creator. As the great creator, the maker of all things, God has total authority over his creation. That means he decides how it functions. He decides the purpose for it. I heard one pastor say it this way, if he decides, if he designs it, he defines it. If God designs it, he defines it. That means God is ruler over love. He gets to determine what it looks like. We do not. Right? Not only that, but there are a lot of other things that God as creator gets to determine. This may be a bit of an aside here, but here are just a couple of things I want to give to you. Number one, God gets to determine what is sin. God gets to determine what is sin. We don't get to determine that based on how we feel. God has set a standard. God says, this is a holy offense to me. We don't get to determine what is sin. God has set that standard. Another thing God gets to define, God gets to define what is justice. You see, the Lord through his word has given us this standard of how we are to deal with each other in a fashion that uh, demonstrates equality. Right, that doesn't dismiss a person based on their ethnicity or their status or their gender or any of these things. God sets the standard for what justice is. He defines that. Another one, God defines what is a man and what is a woman. Manhood, womanhood. God defines that. Genesis 1 says he created them both in his image, male, female. That's it, male, female. God designed it, so he defines it. 
Number four, this is a big one. Marriage, the covenant of marriage. God's designed that, so he gets to define what it is. He's given us the institution of marriage. Therefore, he gets to determine what that means and what that looks like. You see, among all those other things, God also defines what love looks like. How arrogant and rebellious can we be if we think we can take something that God's designed and try to improve upon it? As if somehow his design is flawed, or it's fallen short, or God's making, made some sort of mistake. See, God's the originator. He's the creator. So he gets to tell us what that looks like. Verse 7 says, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So here John reminds us that demonstrating love for one another is evidence of our rebirth. It solidifies our claim to know God. Listen, you cannot claim to love and know God and simultaneously neglect your duty to love the people around you. That's a walking contradiction. See, being regenerated, being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit is what actually unites us with God. And as a result, our selfish hearts now become hearts that are willing to love openly, humbly, in a sacrificial fashion. I want to look at Romans 5, 5 says God has or God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, God's love becomes our love. God's love becomes our love, and we're willing to display that and offer that to the people around us. That's evidence that we have been born again. See, if you've truly encountered and received the love of God, you cannot be the same. God's love changes us. It changes us. It changes us internally, but more importantly, it changes us eternally. It changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we love those around us. That should be evident in the life of every believer. That should be evidence in the way we treat our neighbor, our fellow man, right? According to the Apostle John, he says that those who claim to uh, know God but don't love their brothers, man, they're liars. He says we've lied. We've actually not been born again. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, he talks about this here. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is very simple logic here. This isn't very complicated. If you don't love the people that God's placed around you, you haven't been born again. It's not showing evidence of your regeneration. In fact, he says you're still walking in darkness. You're still walking in darkness. He says it again in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He says you're still dead. Right? Pastor Tyler talked about this last week, Ephesians 2. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. He says if you're not evidencing that you've been born again by the way that you love the people in your life, you're still dead. In fact, he goes on in chapter 4, or excuse me, in this verse here in chapter 3, and compares those who hate their brothers to murderers. 
And that may be strong language. That may be a strong illustration, like a drastic comparison to you. But he's saying you're just as condemned. You're just as condemned. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Again, the point is clear. Loving others is evidence that we have been born of God. Verse 8 says that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, this is a really popular verse, particularly the second half of it, right? People love that phrase, God is love. People quote it all the time, often out of context, right? They'll say, see, look at that. Look at that. It says right there, God is love. How could he ever condemn anyone to hell? How could he ever do any of the things that I read about in the Old Testament, right? How could God do that? It says clearly right here, God is love. Yes, God is love. That is gloriously and wonderfully true, but God is more than just love. You see, love originates with God and finds its ultimate source in God, but God isn't merely love. He is more than that. See, love is simply one of his many attributes, His love doesn't work apart from his holiness and his mercy and his justice and all of his other divine attributes. What is meant here is that uh, it is essentially his nature, his essence, his character to love. Listen, if you were here with us as we studied through the book of Amos, we saw that even God's judgment and his warning through his prophet was an act of his love. It was an act of grace. Right? Think about with your own children. I think about when you discipline your children or when you tell them no or you restrict them from something. It's usually for good reason, I hope anyway, because you love them, right? But sometimes our children, they don't understand that. It's like, well, mom and dad must not love me. They told me no. They told me I couldn't have this thing. No, I actually told you no because I love you. And I'm actually disciplining you because I love you. See, in God's nature, it's all out of his love. Right? But that's not just who God is. We have to understand that. We can't look at God as just a, a, a spiritual buffet, a divine buffet where we can just take the attributes that we want. Like all of those work together. Right? God is the originator of love. God is love, but he's not simply just that. See, brothers and sisters, as we consider the idea of love and what it means and how it's shown, what it requires, we cannot neglect the origin of love, and that is God himself, holy, the holy creator. All right, so we understand that God is the originator of love. That's point number one. Point number two, God's love is made manifest in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we could go round and round about what love actually means. It's one thing to talk about love. It's another thing to actually demonstrate it. Believe me, if you engage with the culture, you will have this conversation over and over and over again. People often say, hey, they love you. Maybe for some of you in here, people have told you that they love you, but their actions don't line up. 
Their actions don't match their words. Well, praise God, we belong to a loving Heavenly Father that loves us in both word and deed. He's shown that by intervening on our behalf through Christ Jesus. You see, after reminding his audience that love originates from God and challenging his readers to love one another, here John directs our attention to the way that God has manifested his love. You see, verse 9 tells us the most glorious reality. The single greatest act of love throughout all of history, God sending his son into the world to die for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. And I want you to consider the magnitude of this selfless act of love that God Almighty, the creator of all things, would send his only son into the world to die so that we could live. Brothers and sisters, that is what we needed That's what we needed most, a savior, a mediator, one to stand in our place, one to pay the debt that we had accrued. And so God, out of his steadfast and abundant love, what does he do? He gives us himself. He's given us himself through Christ Jesus. So, of course, when we think about God's manifest love, what's the first verse we always go to? It's very popular. In fact, the Glenn's read that as well this morning. It's John 3.16, right? And I'm sure most of us in here can quote it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to think about the word begotten here, what that actually means. See, that describes the uniqueness of the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father. It talks about Jesus being one of one. Very unique. There are none like him, none that came before, none that will come after. Why is that important to understand? Because that underscores the magnitude of God's sacrifice, giving up his one and only son for you, for us. I hope that isn't lost on you this morning. You see, that this perfect holy God would send his son from heaven where he eternally existed in perfect unity as the second person amongst the Trinity. He sends him into the world, and by his blood, he rescues and redeems a people for himself. And it's not because God needed us. God wasn't lonely. God was loving. God is very loving. And out of his love for creation, he stepped in to intervene when we needed him most, to rescue us from the realities of sin and death. When we were dead in our trespasses, in rebellion to God, he didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He didn't leave us to try to figure it out on our own or to die in our sins or to pay the debt that we had run up. Instead, he put forth his one and only son as a means for our freedom and our forgiveness and our redemption. This is love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Look, we looked at John 3.16. Let's look at 1 John 3.16. And this is what it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. See, that's what love looks like. It's sacrifice. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. See, God has made his love known to you. He's made his love known to us through his son, Christ Jesus. He died so that we could live. The text tells us that uh, he came into the world so that we might live through him. 
So what does that mean? What does it mean that we live through Jesus Christ? What does it mean to live through him? That means we have eternal fellowship with God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It means that the life that Christ provides means no longer do we continue to walk in darkness, but we are now called into his marvelous light. It means freedom from the eternal penalty of sin. It means freedom now as we walk in the newness of life. It means everlasting life as children of the living God. It means grace upon grace upon grace and mercies that are new each day. What a glorious life the Son provides. What a glorious reality that is. So we move forward to verse 10. It tells us that, uh, it says not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. See, John reminds us not only is God the originator, He's the initiator of love. He initiates love. It's not because we loved him or honored him first. In fact, it's quite the contrary. The Glenn family also read Isaiah 53. Well, Isaiah 53, 6 tells us that we all like sheep have gone astray. We didn't love God first. We turned away from him. We rebelled against him. And guess what? We love him because he's first loved us. And he's shown that in the most incredible way in Christ Jesus. What an astonishing and truly humbling display of love. It's inexplicable. It's unconditional. You can't be separated from God's love. If you are one of his own, there is nothing that can stop that. It's all-encompassing. It's steadfast. He is faithful to the very end. God's love is an all-consuming and saving love. But here's the reality. We live in a fallen and broken world, don't we? We encounter people all the time that are hurting and broken. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're asking the very question, does anybody love me? Could anybody love me? Maybe you've been abused, you've been betrayed, you've been lied to, you've been used and neglected, and you think to yourself, there's no way anyone could ever love me. The truth of the gospel message is that not only can you be loved, you are fully, completely, and unconditionally loved by God because of his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, and even if you're in here and you're not a believer, but maybe this is you, and you're questioning whether you're worthy of love, if you're questioning whether you are loved, look no further than Calvary. That is the manifest love of God. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 8, which the Glenn family also read. I should have just stayed in my seat. They read my sermon, basically. But Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 8. He says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, God saved us while we were sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our lives together. He didn't wait for me to be good enough. Guess what? This is why, because I could never be good enough. I could never get there. And he acted at just the right time. Christ died for us. He didn't come to us at our best because we were so great and mighty. Christ came to us out of his steadfast love in our weakness, in our sin. As we were lost, God put forth the spotless lamb of God. 
Friends, if you're wondering where to find the love of God, the Lord has shown his love to you in the greatest way in the cross. You see, when we look to the cross, we find two truths there. We find the severity of our sin, but we also find the depths of God's love. You see, God in his holiness, he demands a sacrifice. His wrath requires satisfaction. It must be appeased. But God in his love, he provided the means for that satisfaction. He himself took the punishment that should have been mine, should have been yours, it should have been ours. This is the loving reality of the gospel message. Friends, this is what we must remind ourselves of consistently, but especially in your moments of doubt, when you doubt the love of God. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've sinned and you've stumbled and you just think there's no way God could love me. Or again, maybe your lot in life has been one of burden, disappointments, failed relationships, financial hardships, loss of loved ones, friends. Maybe you've just had a difficult go of things. And you're just thinking there's no way God loves me. I just don't see it. I don't feel it. It's just not there. I encourage you to look to the cross. When you wake up in the morning, go to the cross. Throughout the day, go to the cross. Before you lay down in the evening, look to the cross. Daily, remind yourself, go back to the cross over and over and over again until you're convinced of God's eternal love for you. See, brothers and sisters, this is the reason for our hope, our joy, and the peace that we have. We are recipients of God's love. And it's a strange and perplexing thing to me when Christians walk through life void of any joy. It's like, man, have you forgotten who you belong to? Have you forgotten that you are a beneficiary of the steadfast, eternal love of God? Have you forgotten whose you are? And how God has shown his love to you in the truest, the purest, most lasting fashion. This is the reason for us to walk, with, walk around with joy, to walk around rejoicing. And I don't mean a cheap joy like a holiday cheer, something that's uh, exclusive to a couple weeks out of the year. This should be daily consistent in our lives. Joy, peace, hope because of the love of Christ lavished upon us freely in spite of our sin and depravity. And God's love, God loves you. He's shown you that in the cross, in Christ Jesus. See, God's love is the source of our peace, again, the reason for our hope. And God's love is what motivates us to love. First and foremost, this is what initiates our love for him. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. See, our love, our love for God is a response to being loved by God. See, although we do our best to love God, our love falls terribly short of his perfection. We can't outgive God in love. We can't beat him in this department. We can never match him there. John says that this love that God has shown to us through Christ Jesus is the greatest, truest demonstration of love. So we understand that God is the originator of love, number one. 
Number two, that God's love is manifest to us, alive to us, real to us, shown to us in Christ Jesus. Point number three, final point, is that God's love is perfected in us when we love others. Verses 11 and 12, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's John again, circling back to where he began. We ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. See here, the apostle John continues to build on this idea of love, specifically our response to experiencing the manifest love of Christ. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, well, let's just stop right there. Well, we know that God so loved us. We just talked about how he demonstrated that. So we know that's a reality. So John says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So John's argument is this, if you receive the love of God, our natural response out of gratitude towards this gospel of grace and God's saving love ought to be a consistent love for one another. This isn't a new concept. Again, John has addressed this throughout the letter, but this isn't an instruction that is exclusive to the Apostle John. See, the Lord Jesus himself commands his followers to love one another. In fact, he says this will be an identifying mark for his people. In John 13, 35, it says, and these are the words of Jesus. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <clears throat> Those are the words of our Lord Jesus. But we can also look to the Apostle Paul, consider what he writes in Galatians 6.10. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, the call to love one another begins with our brothers and sisters. It begins in the household of faith, this covenant community. See, this is our witness to the watching world. This is how we mark ourselves off from the rest of the world. This is how we set ourselves apart, by genuine love and affections for our brothers and sisters. Listen, this should be commonplace amongst God's people. This should be an ever-present reality within the body of Christ. John even goes on to say in chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, that you're discredited in your claim to love God if you withhold love from your brothers. He says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I know what you're thinking here. What about the brother that mistreats me? What about the brother that talks about me behind my back? What about the sister that's constantly coming after me because of our conflicting political opinions? What about that person that hurt and betrayed me? That person that broke my trust? What about that family member or that coworker or that neighbor? 
Listen, if they too bear the name of Jesus, you are called to love them too. Listen, you're not going to find any loopholes here. There's no exit strategies. There's no uh, exception clauses. None of that. We are called as God's people to love our brothers and sisters. The believer has a consistent duty to love one another. And we are to love as Christ loves. So this isn't a half-hearted love. It's not I'll give you about 60% and I'll withhold the other 40 It's not half-hearted. We are to love as Christ loves, so that that requires sacrifice and humility. It means extending love even to those that are ungrateful and rebellious. And again, that's why it's so difficult. And that is why we must be dependent upon the Spirit to be at work in us. You see, the command to love others begins with loving our brothers and sisters within this covenant community, but it certainly does not end there. It does not end there. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, and I think this is a verse we're all familiar with. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see, our call to love is not restricted to the household of faith. Jesus Christ expects his followers to love their enemies as well. And why is this so important? This is so important because as we love our enemies, we are truly imitating and displaying the love of God. You see, that's exactly what God did. He came here and showed his love to his enemies, to his opponents, We just read the verse, he saved us while we were sinners, not while we were friends. We were in opposition to God. And he came here to love the unlovable, to rescue us. So when we love our enemies, we are imitating God the Father. Like I'm convicted of this, even this week. When I read the encounter of between Jesus and Judas, And Jesus knew exactly what Judas would do to him. And nowhere in the scriptures do you ever see Jesus rebuke, or excuse me, reject, dismiss, or speak harshly to Judas. In fact, he broke bread with him. He never speaks down to Judas. And he knew what Judas would do to him. But I can't extend love to my neighbor because he's in my parking spot convicted when I read these words. And we show the love of God best when we love the potentially unlovable. Those who are in opposition to us, we are reflecting the radical love of God. Friends, I want you to think about what an incredible apologetic this could be. If we could lay aside our pride and our preferences and even in the face of hatred, and rejection and persecution still offer the same love and kindness that's been given to us in and through Christ Jesus. And look, maybe you have an opportunity to do that this this season, right? Maybe you're going to go sit down with some family members that you know you don't get along with. You have different political opinions. Maybe you're on a different theological spectrum. Maybe you just have different views all the way around. And maybe every time you get together, they're on your neck about everything, They've mistreated you. 
for years, dismissed you. But this holiday season, as you're around the dinner table, you have gospel opportunities to love them as Christ has loved you. That's when God's love is perfected in us. See, that's truly one of the simplest ways to show Christ to those around you is by the way that you love them. One commentator says it this way, Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another. See, this is why John says here, no one's ever seen God. So we can't look upon God's face. We can't see him in all his glory and his majesty and his holiness. But guess what? People can see God in us by the way that we love one another. That is how we show them Christ. See, and God perfects this love in us and he brings it to maturity not only gives us the ability to love one another as Christ has loved us, but the desire to do the very same thing. It's all a work of God, all a work of the Spirit. He gets the glory for that. So as we prepare to close our time together this morning, I want to direct our attention to Christ. I want to point us back to the Savior. You see, during this Christmas season, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of what Christ came to do and his unending love for you. John 13, 1 says this, rather obscure verse, but it has significance here. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, Jesus knew his hour had come. This was uh, hours before he would be arrested. He would be tried unfairly, found guilty, then crucified and killed. He knew that his hour had come. Listen, Jesus knew the reason that he came into this world. He knew that his fate would be to take to the cross. And it wasn't necessarily fate. It was the will of God. It was the will of God to crush and crucify his son. Guess what? He did that for you. You can personalize that. Listen, we often talk, hey, don't take it personal. Please personalize that. That was for you. Jesus Christ came and lived and died for you. He talks, it talks about here him loving his very own to the end. That's an unending love. That's unconditional, unwavering, unwavering unchanging love for you. That's what we celebrate this season. That the Savior was born and that Jesus came to lay aside his life as as the good shepherd for his sheep. Christ motivated by the glory of his father and his love for his own willingly laid aside his life. So then the question as we end becomes how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? Well first of all the first response would be to love God. For our hearts to be moved to a place where we treasure and delight in him. That he is our greatest joy, our highest good, the most high God. We live in a way that brings honor and reverence to his name. In obedience and worship and devotion to Christ Jesus. That is our first response. But the second response is by loving others selflessly and sacrificially. See, that's God's design for love. Not a love rooted in selfishness or pride, 
or wicked desires, but that we would resemble the love that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. We would honor him by modeling this humble and sacrificial love and displaying that to those in our life. So as we end today, I just want to ask four simple questions. Four simple questions. Number one, have you encountered and do you know the love of God through Christ? And if so, has it changed you? Has it changed you in some way? Do you know the love of Christ and has it changed you? Number two, am I willing to love in a sacrificial way in order to point others to Christ? Am I willing to love in a sacrificial way in order to point others to Christ? Number three, will I lay aside my own life, my own preferences and comfort and convenience to love others as Christ did? Am I willing to lay aside all of these things, comfort, convenience, pride, in order to love others as Christ did? Finally, number four, how can I love those around me better? How can I better love those around me? These are questions for us to ponder on this season. Not just this season, but every day, consistently. We have a great opportunity this season as we're gathering with people we normally wouldn't see. But these are great questions for us to ponder on. Do I know the love of God? Am I willing to show it in a sacrificial way? How can I better love those around me? My hope is that we are daily reminded of and humbled by God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And by his love, we are compelled to love one another for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're thankful of what we read in this text this morning. God, that you have shown your love to us in the greatest way through Christ Jesus. That though we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory, God, you sent your Son into the world to be a substitute for our sins, to satisfy your wrath. He died the death we deserve so we could live the life that we don't. God, we thank you for that reality. I pray that all those in here right now, maybe there are those in here that don't know you, that haven't encountered the love of Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would touch their hearts right now and do the work of transforming their hearts and renewing their minds to the reality of that love, that they would surrender their lives to you. And God, for those of us in here that do know you, that are in relationship with Christ Jesus, help us to be convicted in the moments that we don't display Christ-like love. Help us to take advantage of those gospel opportunities that are presented to us to love others as Jesus has loved us. God, I pray that we would leave this place today worshiping you and loving the people that you placed in our lives, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.